Welcome. I'm Elizabeth Barker, Stanford Calderwood Director of the Boston Athenaeum, and I think I know what some of you are thinking. You must be thinking to yourselves, Lizzie, weren't you just standing here six months ago introducing Simon Winchester when he was here to speak about The Professor and the Madman? Could this possibly be the same author to have another book ready? Yes, in fact, we're very fortunate. You are in the right place. Our speaker today is none other than the best-selling author and journalist, Simon Winchester. Born in London, he studied geology at St. Catherine's College in Oxford, and during his career at The Guardian, he served as a regional correspondent in Northern Ireland, Calcutta, and Washington, D.C., covering such notable events as Bloody Sunday and the Watergate scandal. He has written more than a dozen books, all of which are available in our library, one of which is available for sale in the Bow Room. They include, in addition to The Professor and the Madman, The Men Who United the States, Atlantic, and The Man Who Loved China. He frequently contributes to Condé Nast Traveler, The Smithsonian Magazine, and National Geographic. And in recognition of his many contributions to literature, he was elected an honorary fellow of St. Catherine's College and appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire. Today, he will discuss with us his most recent book, Pacific, Silicon Chips and Surfboards, Coral Reefs and Atom Bombs, Brutal Dictators, Fading Empires, and the Coming Collision of the World's Superpowers, in which he shares the fascinating story of today's ocean through a series of journeys, both in geography and in time. As you join me in welcoming him back to the podium, may I ask that you please take a moment to silence any noise-making devices and make note of the emergency exit signs at the front and back of the room? Thank you, and let's welcome Simon Winchester. Well, th thank you very much indeed. And when I heard you read that subtitle, it's so long. I mean, it's almost as long as the book itself. And I hasten to say I had nothing at all to do with it. This was going to be called Pacific, the Ocean of the Future, but my publishers said it's got to have silicon chips and so forth, coral, for the simple reason for Google searches. So if someone is searching, I know, so it's crazy. So not my responsibility. It seems happily or unhappily topical, because I don't know if you listened to the BBC and indeed saw the New York Times this morning. The big news is um, about the American destroyer task force. Um, going as close as it possibly can to the islands that are being built or rebuilt by the Chinese in the South China Sea. So this reminds us what part of this book is about, which is that the Pacific is an ocean which is increasingly going to be in, in the forefront of, uh, of the news. And uh, already the Chinese have said, uh, don't do this again, because we're going to uh, take, take steps. So it's becoming rather dangerous. So I, there's a whole chapter on that in this book, and I'm not going to be talking about it uh, in the next few minutes uh, to any great extent, but it, it is there. And so if you want any background to what you're seeing on the news and what you'll see, I dare say, on the news tonight on television, then it is all here. Um, I'm a great believer that... Uh, when you write a non-fiction book, there are three essential components. Uh, 
the first, the most important, of course, is the idea. You've got to have a, a decent idea for what you're going to write. But the second most important thing, it's tempting to think, should be good writing. Um, it's always nice to have, if it's written beautifully, that, that helps. But it's not, in my view, the second most important thing. The second most important thing is to get the structure of the book right. And so I wrestle mightily to create what I think will be readable and logical and, and a sensible structure. The Atlantic, which was a book I did um, four or five years ago, the structure there was the seven ages of man from Shakespeare, from As You Like It, which seemed to work reasonably well, because if you apply, you know, childhood and school child, lover, soldier, old man, return to childhood, it, it, it worked quite well. And similarly with the, the most recent book, or the last book, The Men Who United the States, there I chose the five uh, elements in Chinese classical philosophy, water, uh, wood, earth, water, fire and metal, and that similarly seemed, seemed to work quite well. But when I came to think about uh, the Pacific Ocean, it's just so vast and so immensely complicated um, that it took a long while to come up with a structure. And I'll explain what that structure is, but I think that's this book will, will succeed or fail on whether the critics think that it, 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 is, it is a logical uh, structure. So the first thing, uh, the, the, the thesis behind, behind the book, I suppose, is a very simple one. The Mediterranean is the inland sea of the classical world, and I think we all, when we think about it, probably would agree with that. If we do, then the Atlantic Ocean is the inland sea of today's world. And if we agree with that, then the Pacific, this is my belief anyway, and certainly what's happening at the moment in the South China Sea, is the inland sea of tomorrow's world. That, to me, suggests that Unlike with the Atlantic, I'm not going to go way back in history to describe it in, the, in this book. I'm going to look at it in much more up-to-date terms. So the people that you're familiar with from school and, and so forth, the first person, the first European to see it, who was Balboa, not incidentally Cortez. You may remember that Keats wrote about you know, Cortez on a peak in Darien, he wrote that poem late one night and he showed it to his mentor the following morning who said, but it wasn't Cortez that uh, actually saw the Pacific, it was Balboa. You've got to change it. And Keats said, actually Balboa doesn't scan so well, so just, <laughs> let's just leave it with Cortez and generations of school children ever since then have come to this belief that the first European was Cortez. Well, it wasn't, it was Balboa. So Balboa... Magellan, nine years later, who crossed it, actually didn't because he was assassinated in, in, in the Philippines, but nonetheless it was his expedition. And then all the other people that we associate in history with, with, the, with the Pacific Ocean, most notably, of course, Captain Cook. I decided to put all those to one side and accept that as a given. We all, we all know those people. So let's start the story much more recently. But when? So I thought, well, it could be the surrender of the Japanese on board the Missouri on the 2nd of September 1945. That would be a fairly appropriate moment. Or the founding of the People's Republic of China 
on the 10th of October 1949. That also seemed reasonable. But increasingly another date um, sort of swam into view, which has a beautiful logic to it and um, reminds me of one of the delights of writing non-fiction books is that you're learning all the time. And this is something I, I didn't realize. Maybe you all know this, but I didn't, in which case it's an indication of my profound ignorance on these matters. We conventionally for years have been content to use the initials BC and AD when we date things before Christ and Anno Domini. But of course, for people who are not Christian, that's irrelevant. And so that's tended to fall somewhat out of favor. And instead, we've tended to use a sort of a fudge of a convention, which is BCE, which is taken to either mean before common era or before Christian era. So that sort of works, except not for the scientific community. The scientific community have in recent times used a different convention called BP. And you talk about the Wisconsin Ice Age, for instance, having occurred 10,000 years BP. What does BP mean? Well, it means before present. But then you have to decide, well, when is present? And there is a date. The index year, the index moment for the dating system BP, before present, is the 1st of January, 1950. And then one says, well, why the 1st of January, 1950? And there's a simple and, as I say, rather beautifully logical reason. And this will also, I'm afraid, take you back to uh, school child memories. It's all to do with carbon-14 dating. I'm sure you know the principles of carbon-14 dating, that in the atmosphere there are, is carbon and carbon dioxide. And there are two isotopes. There's carbon-12, which is stable, and carbon-14, which decays and has a half-life of 7,530 years, a sort of number which is hammered into my brain anyway when I was a schoolchild. So when something that absorbs carbon dies and stops absorbing carbon, then although the amount of carbon-12 in it remains constant, the amount of carbon-14 will be reduced by half every 7,530 years. And so by measuring the amounts of carbon, you can tell exactly, very exactly, when that tree or that fossil expired. Well, that's all well and good if the ratio between carbon-12 and carbon-14 is constant, which it was for a very long time, until 1950. And what started to happen in 1950 is because of atomic testing, one of the fission products of weapons testing was it produced a huge amount of carbon-14, which it threw up into the atmosphere. And so all of a sudden, from almost exactly January 1950, the ratio between carbon-12 and carbon-14 started to change. And so to have accurate dating, you had to introduce an algorithm every year, and a more and more complicated algorithm. And it, until 1963, which is when most nuclear testing uh, stopped, except, of course, for the French, who are pesky about these things, um, you had to introduce this algorithm. So before 1950, the world, one could say, was pure. And after 1950, thanks to our efforts and our efforts in the Pacific Ocean, which is why it makes it appropriate for me, it became impure. So I thought that is the date to choose. 
So what I then did, I now know the, the beginning point of the book and the end point of the book. So I thought, well, the structure, I'm not going to use, as you like it, I'm not going to use Chinese classical philosophy. Let us look at a number of events that occurred in and around the ocean from January 1950 to now, 2014, 2015, events that seem to betoken or presage a major trend in the ocean and that once taken together in a sort of pointillist portrait would display the modern ocean, the ocean of the future. So I made a list of, I should think, about 250, 300 things and I went to each one of them and thought, is this important? Is it interesting? Does it betoken a, a trend? And in the end, winnowed them down to 10, because it seemed to me that 10 is probably an ideal number of chapters. And um, then decided on those 10 and wrote the book. And as I say, that decision is, is what will, I hope the reviewers will look at sympathetically, I hope. So j just to give you, I won't go through all 10 of them, but just to... Uh, as an indication, the first chapter actually is just four days after the, uh, after the, after the 1st of January. It's the 4th of January, 1950, when President Truman uh, stood before Congress to make his State of the Union message. And he announced for the, for the first time ever that America was going to start testing a completely new type of weapon. It had tested, of course, fission bombs. We knew all about those. And of course, two of them had been used to attack Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But now they were going to test these bombs of theoretically limitless potential, hydrogen bombs, thermonuclear weapons, and they were going to test them in the Marshall Islands and specifically in Bikini in, in the Western Pacific. So I devote a great chapter to that, and I, in fact, I call it the Great Thermonuclear Sea because there's, uh, it has a sort of overarching um, indication of the way that Western people have misused the Pacific Ocean. The second, much more congenial, which was, uh, it's funny because I was in Edmonton, Alberta yesterday, where it's very cold and there are no trees miserable at this time of year. But oddly enough, the Canadians have slightly grumbled that there isn't an awful lot of Canada in this book. Well, chapter two actually begins in Edmonton because the stores in 1955, August the 8th, in Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Vancouver, the electrical goods stores had in their windows a new device um, that they were hawking for, I think, $50 or something, which was a shirt pocket-sized radio set. Up to that point, I think, if we remember back then, radio sets were pieces of furniture. They were sort of covered in walnut, and you put aspidistras on them, and you turned them on, and they warmed up, and you'd hear the stations come in, and you'd tune them. This device was tiny, it was portable, you could hang it on a tree, you could put it on a table in the garden, you could listen anywhere. It was, the, it was called the TR55, and it was the first transistor radio. And it was invented and marketed by a firm called Totsko, or its initials TTK, Tokyo Telecommunications Company. Except that in tiny letters under the dial was a word which no one had ever heard before, which was the word Sony. And that began a huge 
new development in trade because within weeks, within months, container ships, although they weren't invented until the mid-1950s, were streaming from ports in Japan and then later in Korea and then nowadays in China ever eastward to the Golden Gate Bridge, to Seattle, to, to Vancouver. So that development seemed to me to be tremendously important. And I love the man who's associated with it. He, if we think about the Sony Corporation at all, we think of that rather smooth sort of silver fox of a man, Akio Morita, who was the public face of Sony. But this engineer called Masaru Ibuka, a great sort of hero of mine, and he was an inventor. I mean, he was a rough, tough Japanese engineer. And he invented the transistor radio, and he invented the Walkman. I dare say a few of you will remember the Walkman. He invented the Trinitron television, which drove a horse and cart through television technology. He invented the Betamax. He and that company and Japanese electronics had a huge effect on our life and on the Pacific, the economy of the Pacific generally. The third chapter relates, we're now another five years further on, 1959, I think August, middle of August, um, a movie was opened in Long Island. Um, Columbia Pictures, who made the movie, didn't have the confidence that the movie would do particularly well, so they didn't open it in New York and Los Angeles, just in the American suburbs. But the New York Times film critic was curious and went to see it and raved about it. And it became instantly very popular. And it was a movie called Gidget. I don't know if you remember. Sandra D, starring as a 15-year-old schoolgirl who was known, called Kathy Kona, who loved surfing. And surfing is a sport that was born in Tahiti, developed in Hawaii, first discovered in 1907 by Jack London, because Jack London happened to be going through Hawaii on the voyage of the snark, going across the Pacific, and he was enraptured by this sport of surfing. He saw young children surfing in Waikiki, which was then completely undeveloped. And he wrote an essay for the Women's Home Companion in October 1907, Surfing the Sport of Kings, and it immediately caught on but only in specified areas, Redondo Beach in California, Sydney, the, the piece was syndicated all over the world, so Sydney and Australia. But then came Gidget in 1959, and suddenly this industry, the Pacific's gift to playtime, if you like, suddenly took off. It's now $13 billion a year. Surfing culture infects American industry. Firms like Patagonia, for instance, their whole working practices based on surfing, the founder, a man called Yvonne Schwinard, says to this day that all of my factories, which are near the sea, if the surf's off, go and surf, have a nice time, come back and work when you feel able to, and the people are so happy as a result that they work e e even harder. And so, so, so the chapters go on. There's a chapter on North Korea, there's a chapter on the environmental degradation of the Pacific, and the tenth, the culminating chapter, is all about what we've been talking about at the beginning, the coming collision. Uh, we hope it's not going to be a violent one between the two superpowers that glare at each other across the Pacific, uh, China uh, and the United States. So in a way, the book, I suppose the overall tone of the book is 
not alarmist, but somehow it, it's a constant reminder that ever since Western people have invaded this territory, which was a place given over to the Polynesians and the Micronesians and the Melanesians and the people who live on the farther side of it, we've colonized it, we've spoiled it in one way or another, we've, we've disdained it, we've misused it. Although the something which I'll talk about towards the end, uh, which the Hawaiians have done lately, and I spent a lot of time in Hawaii researching this book, is, I hope, an indication that we're going to start respecting the Pacific and treating it rather better than we have in the past. So what I thought I'd do is, is from this, as you can imagine from how I've sort of sketched the surface of it, there's an awful lot there. There's a lot of, lot of stuff about the Pacific. And, and I'll just sort of select three things which piqued my interest and, and I hope you might find amusing. The first relates to North Korea. I mean, I've been there many, many times. I should tell you, I mean, just anecdotally, one uh, quite amusing thing. Uh, one of the times I went to North Korea, I don't know, have any of you been to Pamunjom, the, the place where the... Well, Pamunjom is this weird place, this one gap in the DMZ where, you know, prisoner exchanges and family visits are arranged, and where the Americans in particular and the South Koreans are literally looking as closely as I am to people in the front row here, at their North Korean counterparts. And so there's a big, on the, on, the, on the South Korean side, there's a big viewing platform, and you look over into North Korea and you can hear these loudspeakers burbling, the constant 24 hours a day um, propaganda, and you see North Korean soldiers and a few North Korean people. It's a very, very strange place. And the Americans are always keen, I mean, I should say Americans, I'm an American now, so this is no criticism of America, I promise. We say that the building you can see in the distance, which is about as far away as the exit sign, um, they say this is a fabricated building. It's just uh, like a Hollywood set, you know, it's got beams at the back. Well, when I went there from the northern side, it's not. It's a perfectly normal building. I mean, it's, a com it's, it's part of the, uh, the tissue of lies told by both sides which is a reminder that the first casualty of war is truth. So I went to the northern side with a bunch of North Korean soldiers. And I'm looking towards the viewing station that I've stood on myself many, many times. And between me, you know, the minefields and all sorts of nastiness, you cannot go from one to the other. So I'm standing looking, and I've got a very, fairly powerful um, pair of binoculars. And I'm looking at an American soldier and the ones that are chosen by the American government to be on patrol in, at the border are all gigantic, I mean, to terrify the North Koreans. So this, this fellow was about six foot nine and built like a, a brick, whatever, uh, factory, let's say. And he's looking at me through a, a long lens of a camera, thinking, what is this man doing? Is he a Bulgarian spy or is some sort of communist fellow traveler? And um, I want to say, you know, I, I'm a friend, I'm, I'm one of you, don't, don't, don't worry. So I'm there and I've got my binoculars and I decide, we know we're looking directly at each other, even though we're separated by 100 yards or so. So I decide to wave my hand like that. <laughs> but he, totally humorless, simply says, <laughs> 
and such does, does, does hostility continue. But the extraordinary thing that I discovered about North Korea, it was actually created by an American. And I love this because I love the name of the guy. He was called Charles Hartwell Bone Steel III. Magnificent name, sort of Bostonian name. Could well be a Bostonian name, I fear. And um, what happened was this. Charles Hartwell Bone Steel III was a young colonel. And he and another young colonel, who's much better known, called Dean Rusk, whom you may remember was Secretary of State in John Kennedy's administration, were in the outer office of George C. Marshall, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, on the 14th of August, 1945. And they were listening in on the radio, I don't say a furniture-like piece of radio, to Emperor Hirohito over in Japan giving the famous speech, the pro progress of the war has not necessarily gone to our advantage, one of the great, great understatements of all time, and we're surrendering. So they heard that, and both the colonels said, well, that's it, that's the Japanese problem. Over, the new problem is the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union, which had joined the war just a week previously, was now racing southwards in all the places that had been occupied by the Japanese. It was racing down Sakhalin Island, it was threatening Hokkaido, it was racing down through Manchuria, sending its tanks and infantry down through Korea. And the Americans said, we've got to stop this, because if we don't stop the Soviets, we are going to have in double quick time a all-Soviet Korea, we're going to have an all-Soviet Japan, the whole of the Far East is going to be a so Soviet satrapy. So we've got to stop it. Well, said Bone Steel, where should we ask them to stop? And they had a National Geographic magazine. And I see you probably remember that in the geographics of old, you open them up and there would be a fold-out map. And in one of them, 1935, that happened to be on the table, there was a fold-out map of the Pacific Ocean. And they spread it out on the table. And Bone Steel said to Rusk, isn't it peculiar that San Francisco and Seoul are almost on exactly the same line of latitude, 37 degrees 30 north. We think, said Bone Steel, that the traditional, the old capital of Korea, all of Korea, of course, was occupied by the Japanese and had been since 1910. Seoul ought to be ours, ought not to be given to Moscow. So why don't we suggest to them that let's draw a line and he drew a line in with a Chinagraph pencil connecting just a wee bit north of San Francisco and a wee bit north of Seoul and said 38 degrees north, the 38th parallel, that should do it, and took it into Marshall. And Marshall said, um, yeah, 38th parallel seems a pretty neat idea. Let's tell the State Department and get them to ask Moscow. That night, 15th of August now, Moscow was asked whether they would mind stopping their invasion at the 38th parallel, and they said, you know, we're relieved that you asked because we're so bone-weary coming down through Manchuria. It's uh, miserable weather. Our tanks are getting stuck in the mud and all the rest of it. So, yeah, we'll stop at 38th. You Americans can take over south of the 38th parallel. We'll stop north of the 38th parallel. And so they appointed a local commander, Kim Il-sung, and the Americans appointed... Ri Sing Man or Sing Man Ri, and out of that developed two completely separate countries 
which of course went to war in 1951 and there's been this amazing four kilometer wide DMZ existing ever since and all created by this man bone steel and the nice sort of coda to that is that the, the way I deal with this in the book is that I look at the capture in 1968 of the USS Pueblo. I don't know if you remember this incident where this American spy ship was captured by the North Koreans and towed into the port of Wonsan. It's now in Pyongyang. It's used. I've been there. It's a, a tourist destination. It's still a USS ship, so it's regarded by Washington as still being in the service of the US Navy. It just happens to be temporarily out of commission and has been for the last 45 years or so. But the crew, uh, Captain Lloyd Booker, and I think about 80 other sailors were captured and lived, the, uh, I mean, had 11 months of utter misery. Uh, they were beaten, tortured, starved, interrogated, had a dreadful time. But there were negotiations to win their release, conducted by President Johnson's government. And in the end, just before Christmas 1968, they were indeed released. And there's this very poignant moment. It all takes about half an hour. You can see video or film clips of it, where there's, in Panmunjom, the place I was talking about earlier, there is this bridge called the Bridge of No Return because that's the one crossing point, and if you go over it, you can never go back. So on this occasion, I think it was about the 21st of December, cold, cold day, on the northern side were these North Korean army trucks, a bus, I think, an ambulance, and lantern-jawed North Korean soldiers, and, and everything about it was miserable, you know, a diet, an unremitting diet of mashed turnips and nothing else, and out of the buses, the Americans, who didn't know that this was actually their last day of capture, they were ordered to walk 20 yards apart, one at a time, over the Bridge of, North, uh, of No Return, with Booker coming first and then his crewmen afterwards. And, of course, waiting on the other side, the southern side, this side, there were big, beaming Americans with steaks and orange juice and Christmas and freedom and everything that these guys had, had been missing. But the nice sort of sort of logical conclusion to this is that each man, when he was returned into the embrace of the American forces, was warmly shaken hands by the commander of United Nations forces in South Korea, the now General Charles Hartwell Bonesteel III, who was now the commander of the whole shooting match, and yet was the man that had created the problem in the first place. Because when you think about it, if they hadn't drawn that line, if they'd simply said, okay, have the whole thing, have Korea, not do, do not divide it into two countries, it would have become now like Vietnam, Cambodia, where one of my children lives, a formerly communist, now successful and united country. And it always strikes me that creating new borders, you see this in the Balkans today, is a classic example of how the world can be made to spin dangerously out of control. So, Mr. Bernsteel never knew that. It wasn't prescient, nor were any of us. But it is one of the th aspects of the Pacific Ocean that I found particularly fascinating. I'll try another one on you and see if you find this fascinating. This relates to the nuclear testing on, on Bikini Atoll. This is the relatively early days 
Um, and it relates to a man called Alvin Graves. Alvin Graves was a physicist who worked uh, at the Los Alamos Laboratory when they were developing weapons in the 1940s. There's one particular incident which occurred, I think, in April 45, when a man called Louis Slotin, who was also a physicist from Brooklyn, was experimenting with one of the cores of a weapon that they were going to make. What they had was two hemispheres of plutonium, about four inches in diameter, beautifully machined, polished. The one was lying on its back with the flat surface upwards, and the other one was on top of it. If they had been placed on top of each other directly, the amount would have been a critical mass and the thing would have exploded. So they were doing this experiment, and you may have seen, because there's a, a movie which has this very gripping scene in it, showing Slotin with one of the hemispheres on its back, the other one on top of it, but separated by a screwdriver with the face of the screwdriver vertical. So there's a, it, it's at an angle, there's a gap of about a quarter of an inch between the two hemispheres. So you have Slotin behind a wall of beryllium bricks on the far side, the hemispheres. He's reaching over with the screwdriver. And there are scientists dotted around the room beside him. And behind him, this man, Alvin Graves. So they've all got their instruments on. They're monitoring what's happening as they turn the screwdriver ever so slightly, which makes the upper hemisphere move slightly towards the lower hemisphere. And instantly, all the Geiger counters in the room start going crazy. People are measuring, the radiation is pouring out, and he turns it back vertically, and it all stops. Everyone breathes a sigh of relief. And they try it again, only this time they go a little bit more, and it makes the Geiger counters go completely berserk. But he's in control of the situation and returns it to vertical, and the tickling the dragon's tail, as they call this experiment, stops except that at this point, someone drops a teacup. And this startles him, and he pulls the screwdriver out briefly, and this causes the upper hemisphere to drop onto the lower hemisphere. There's a sudden flash of this blue radiation called Cherenkov radiation, and the room is flooded with gamma rays, and every Geiger counter goes to the limits of its tolerance, and the noise is horrendous. Slotin reaches across with his right hand and pushes the upper hemisphere off onto the floor, thereby ending the reaction. But he knows that he's done something terrible, and he instantly shouts to everybody, all those beside him and Alvin Graves beside him, not to move, and he throws dosimeters at them so they can see how much radiation they've absorbed. And he gets a blackboard and starts doing calculations. And after about five minutes of this, nobody's moving. They've seen how much radiation is in the room. He says, okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Mr. Graves, you're probably going to die. And I am definitely going to die, and I'm going to die in nine days. And sure enough, nine days later, with his hand swollen up with edema, he dies horribly and painfully from radiation poisoning. 
Alvin Graves has been essentially shielded by his body. He is very, very ill. He's taken off to hospital, flown back to New York for all sorts of treatment. Blood transfusions, all sorts of things happen. He's unconscious for many weeks, but he pulls it through. In a year, apart from a small amount of baldness in his head, he's okay. He has survived an, a massive dose of radiation. Well, the consequence of this is it changes Alvin Graves' character remarkably. He comes to believe that radiation is no big deal. He would go around saying anyone that succumbs to radiation is essentially a, a Nazi boy. They're just not tough. You, if you're tough, you can withstand radiation. And he goes proselytizing this idea that radiation is something that you can, you can deal with physically. It it's just affects weak people, which is, of course, complete nonsense. But it becomes dangerous nonsense in the 1950s, because fast forward now, he remains very much in the, in the nuclear physics community. And in 1954, when the US government decides to test its really, really big weapons, and most notably a bomb called, in the Castle series, known as Castle Bravo, the second of the, of the Castle series, who do they put in charge of actually pressing the button to fire the bomb? Alvin Graves. So we have this extraordinary situation on the Bikini Atoll. They build an artificial island for this cylinder, which is about 10 feet long. They have made a major miscalculation. They believe it is going to be a modestly big bomb, 17 megatons. I might remind you that the Hiroshima bomb was 25 kilotons. This is 17 megatons, so it's absolutely gigantic. The miscalculation is all to do with a substance called lithium dihydride. It turns out to be 50 megatons, so it's the biggest bomb ever exploded, except the Soviets then went one better, but the biggest, effectively the second biggest bomb. On the day before the explosion, and indeed for two weeks before the explosion, the winds had been blowing to the northwest. Over a thousand miles of empty sea, the American government had insisted there'd be no ships, and the sea was essentially empty. But 24 hours before the test, which was March the 1st, 1954, the wind shifted to the east, and directly in the path of that wind were two fully inhabited islands called Rondjerik and Rondjelap. Alvin Graves, when it came to deciding whether or not to fire the bomb, said, radiation, no big deal. Press that button. Press the button. This titanic explosion went off. And the islanders downwind, within half an hour, a rain of calcined coral was coming down on them, which they thought was snow. They'd never seen such a thing. They were collecting it. They were licking it to see what it tasted like. They were so ill. They remained ill. Many of them died weeks later from all sorts of cancers. Well, the, the, the consequences, the genetic mutations that followed, complete ruin. And there was a, a Japanese fishing boat called the Lucky Dragon, which is not exactly the best name, because it too was rained upon by this uh, great cloud of radiation. They had seen this enormous explosion. It looked like a sunrise, except it was in the Western Sea. And then this extraordinary 
thunderous noise which lasted for several minutes but then got bathed in radiation too. So all of this is down to one highly irresponsible man who had himself survived a radiation experiment but who then went on to dismiss its effects. And this sort of goes generally, I'm afraid, to one of the constant themes of, of the book and of the Western experience. There's a very famous book by Alan Moorhead called The Fatal Impact, which was about the early colonization of the Pacific and the fact that so much disease was brought and so many people were wiped out accidentally. Well, much the same has continued in, in, in recent years. And, and certainly that example of what happened in Bikini Atoll is a, is, a, is a classic example. However, I want to show you a picture. The end papers of this book, which I think are particularly lovely, um, the, the back end paper is sort of what we think of. That's the 7th Carrier Task Force, uh, American 7th Fleet. But this is the more hopeful thing. And I want to tell you a little bit about this ship. This is a Hawaiian sailing canoe, which was built in 1976 in Honolulu as Hawaii's gift to America for the bicentenary. And it has a tremendous symbolic and practical importance. The it's called the Hokulea, and it's a catamaran, two immensely long hulls and these um, sails, built to the design of ships that had been drawn by Captain Cook in the 18th century. The people that built it had this firm belief that Polynesians knew how to navigate across vast expanses of ocean without using any artificial, electronic, mechanical, optical navigation aids. They didn't need sextants, they didn't need compasses, of course they didn't have GPS back in the 1970s, and they didn't use wristwatches to tell them where the south and the north was. They could navigate. It, they knew that in traditional times it was possible to navigate just by looking at the stars, by looking at the flights of seabirds, the patterns of clouds, and although it may sound ludicrous, the feel of the ocean swell. And there was one man, one man only that they knew, who was about 75, called Mao Piaoluk, who lived on the island of Satawal in the Caroline Islands, who they knew knew how to do this. The belief was that the Polynesians had navigated all over this great, great triangle, which is Polynesia, which is Hawaii in the north, Easter Island in the east, and uh, New Zealand, or Aotearoa, in the southwest. And that the islanders had navigated without any instruments for centuries. But then came us, and we said, no, these islands are French, and these islands are German, and these islands are British, so you need a passport to go from this island to another. And the islanders said, well, how do we get a passport? I mean, we've always been able to go from this island to that island. And they said, well, you need to fill in a form. And they said, but we don't know how to read or write. And because of this, they stopped traveling effectively. And so this skill disappeared, except for this man, Mao Piaoluk. So they put him on a plane. He'd never been on a plane before in his life. Flew him up to Honolulu, showed him this magnificent craft and said, can you get this? using your techniques to Tahiti, two and a half thousand miles to the south. And he said, yeah, sure, should be no problem at all. And he taught some of the local young Hawaiians. This was at the time the beginning of the sort of Hawaiian renaissance. Um, he taught them how to do it. 
He builds himself a hammock between the two sweeps, the rudders at the, back, at the stern of the boat. And they set off from Maui, early in 1976, and exactly on time, after whatever it was, six weeks, there was Tahiti. They got exactly where they wanted to go, and they hadn't used any instruments whatsoever. It was just Piaolug, lis listening to the sea, washing the stars, washing the seabirds. And, of course, all Hawaii erupted in delight that they had managed to resurrect this way of life. And um, so they tried it again. They went to Tokyo and reminded the Japanese people that they were Pacific people. They were kindred spirits with the Polynesians. They went up to the Aleutian Islands. They took this little boat to Vancouver. They took it to Chile. And they've been doing it now ever since. And they've now trained 300 Hawaiians. A man called Nainoa Thompson is the, the principal architect. Mao Pialuk himself died. And they've decided now to take this little boat around the world. So it set off from Maui on the 14th of May last year and made Tahiti easily in six weeks, almost a routine trip. Um, and then they went from there to Samoa and there from Tokelau, then to the, I forget where it was, the Cook Islands, I think, then down to New Zealand, spent Christmas in New Zealand, they went to Australia. They're now in the Indian Ocean, so the first time they ventured out of the Pacific. And um, they're just yesterday, they were just northeast of Mauritius, I think, and they're trying to make the decision now whether to turn right and go through past the Horn of Africa and up through the Red Sea and into the Mediterranean, through the Pillars of Hercules and across the Atlantic that way, or whether to turn left and go south of Madagascar into the Agullas Current and go around Cape Agullas and Cape of Good Hope. They intend, and I hope there'll be some publicity for it, they intend sometime late next year, election time, to go up the Chesapeake and see a Hawaiian president, because they regard him as a part of the Brotherhood too, and then leave the Chesapeake, go down, not through the Panama Canal, but go down past Cape Horn, which is going to be tricky, and then back up into the Pacific and, and home. The whole journey will take them four years, they estimate. And you can follow it. I urge you to. The Polynesian Voyaging Society. Just look them up on Google and there you can go day by day by day. There is a chase boat following them. It doesn't have any contact with them. It keeps them merely in sight. It has sat-nav and various other devices, so it knows all the time where the boat is. But they're religiously determined that, the, that Hokulea herself shall not have any assistance whatsoever. And they've made it now. They've done, what, 15,000 miles um, the, the symbolic importance, I think, and which is why I've written about it, and it, it, it fills the epilogue of this book, is that, yes, we have spent a long time disdaining the Pacific and regarding the people that live in the island as sort of savages or primitive or undeveloped peoples. And yet, and what is true for the Polynesians may well be true for many other peoples, they have skills which are remarkable and beautiful and of which we know very little. And so now that we're discovering that they, the Polynesians, have a skill which is very real and tangible, because if this boat makes it all around the world without any navigation assistance at all, we will all say that is a remarkable achievement. It will, I hope, bring the Polynesians and other islanders the respect from us, we arrogant, militaristic, imperialistic Westerners, a degree of respect 
and uh, will place the Pacific, I hope, in the position that it ought to be in a place of remarkable tradition, remarkable strength and resilience and cleverness from which we can learn. So the Pacific is a troubled ocean, suffering from all the business of global warming, the sea level acidity is rising, the ocean itself is rising, islands like Vanuatu and Kiribati are going to be flooded, the Marshall Islands themselves may be flooded too. So I wouldn't deny that it has, it's facing troubles and political and military troubles as well. But nonetheless, there are some eternal verities, such as the nobility and the cleverness of the Polynesian people, from which I hope we can learn. So that's essentially my message, and thank you very much indeed.